Big Five Global on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello and welcome to this, which is our sixth episode of the Big Five Global podcast. Now, I'm Georgia Tolley, and over the next 20 minutes, we are going to be getting into all things construction. That is as we count down to the Big Five Global, which, of course, will be taking place from December the 4th to the 7th, right here in Dubai. Now, If you missed last week's episode, make sure you listen back. You should also be subscribing, of course, because we had a brilliant discussion on careers in the construction industry and whether enough is being done to make jobs attractive for young graduates. It really was a very interesting conversation. And this week is no different as we are planning to turn our attention now to project delivery and how the industry can streamline that process. And I am very pleased to be joined in our Big Five Global Podcast Studio by Cynthia Corby, who is an audit and assurance partner at Deloitte's Dubai office and also a Middle East construction industry leader. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. I'm honoured to be here. Tell me, what are the main issues that you are seeing here in the Middle East with the delivery of these capital big projects? I've been here nearly 19 years. So have witnessed obviously some of the most iconic projects in that time. Always a very exciting place to be in terms of large scale capital and infrastructure projects, but they haven't been built without pain and certainly witnessed the highs and the lows during the the global financial crisis. Back in those days, we saw projects with 25, 30% margins Post the global financial crisis, those margins dropped significantly. We've seen increased competition. Unfortunately, the recurring theme that we do tend to see because of the urgency with which projects are launched and needed to be built is significant overruns. Now, that's not necessarily unique to this market. We do see that around the world as well. And many people grapple with how to address that and create better guidance or a set of principles, better behavior, better collaboration to try and reduce the impact of overruns and late delivery. That's probably the biggest theme that we've seen is the delays on projects just because of the complexity of the the projects in the region and partially due to designs not always being completed when the construction commences. So the concept is there, the idea is there, but the design evolves while ground is being broken and while the project is being built. Now, for somebody outside the sector, that is absolutely staggering to hear that, for example, a massive skyscraper could be not fully planned before you start building. But such is the pace of development here in the UAE. And we're also now seeing it, of course, in Qatar and Saudi Arabia. That has now become a reality. Is that one of the main reasons why you see these really quite chronic delays in delivery and the associated costs? Absolutely. We had a working group pre-COVID and that was facilitated by Mead and Mushrik Bank. And that was really to try and address what the root causes were for some of these issues and how to come up with suggestions for improving them. And we had some of the largest contractor CEOs on that working group. Obviously, Mushrik Bank were there, some of the large consultants in town as well as legal advisors. And we really brainstormed what those root causes were. And we generated three white papers as a result of that. Um, So that was really a lot of information from the industry, 
which ranged from trying to change contracts and get a better risk-reward balance to timing of the projects and better collaboration by all stakeholders before any ground gets broken and then linking it to funding of those projects. So a lot of information was gathered by the industry to try and advocate the change that the industry feels is needed to deliver these programs on time and on budget. And we really do need to see this change, don't we? Because there's this sense of a transition away from purely state funding to involving private investors, for example. Absolutely. And the Dubai government issued the PPP law quite a few years ago. And they launched the big PPP summit at the start of Expo and really demonstrated the significance of the projects that they would like to award under PPP framework. Now, for that to be taken up, your private partner really needs confidence that that project can be built to budget, what their return on investment is going to be, to be able to invest that money. So the debate in the industry is really how can we create that kind of PPP mindset where everybody collaborates to deliver that project on budget, deliver that return on investment for the owner or the developer or the end user. And now with ESG at the heart of everything we do and with COP around the corner, really making sure that that project is designed with the right environmental frameworks in place, the right thought process about how to prolong the life of the asset. So that might require more investment up front, but you need to try and quantify what that will save you in the long run. And it's that kind of thought process to date that hasn't been as evident that we're really trying to encourage. So you've got the potential for slight nervousness around investment. And of course, that's not something that either the UAE or you know, Saudi Arabia would like to see. They want as much money coming into the region as possible. Have you come up with a potential solution to see people through this muddle? Absolutely. So I was invited to join the British Business Group's Construction Forum, and that was during COVID. So we had lots of online meetings, which were very productive. And that was essentially, again, a group of CEOs from some of the largest contractors debating some of the concerns and issues that they were facing, which was not dissimilar to what we had discussed with Mead and Mushrik. And my takeaway with my audit advisory hat on was they were very focused on what was happening on the site as contractors. And what we needed to do was step away and question what the root cause was and try and understand throughout the whole life cycle of the asset which stages need to be improved. So at the planning stage, at the concept stage, at the feasibility stage, then the contracting stage, and then obviously the commissioning, the management of the asset through its whole life. So really thinking through each of those in terms of how that can be improved. We were very fortunate while we were having this debate and thinking about what the solution would be that the UK government were obviously grappling with the same issues at the same time and issued the UK construction playbook in December 2020. They issued that as a guiding set of principles for all large-scale infrastructure that the UK government were going to procure, and they needed to abide by these guiding set of principles. And that playbook was developed through consultation with the whole construction industry. So from your large-scale contractor to your consultant to your SMEs in the supply chain to really hear what their pain points were to develop that playbook. So we thought, what a great idea. And really, we've been advocating creating a similar playbook for the UAE or Dubai to create that framework and that guiding set of principles. Not necessarily a copy and paste because our region is different, we have different needs, we have different challenges, but really using that as some guidance to create something similar. And are you seeing the major stakeholders here, are they receptive to this potential playbook? 
So definitely the industry is. So if we look at the whole chain and of stakeholders involved from your architects, your consultants, your contractors, your SMEs, who all suffered quite a bit over the COVID years, specifically if an SME doesn't get paid, they don't last very long. And we know SMEs are a big part of our economy and what the government's also advocating. The construction industry has also been referred to several times as an economic barometer for our economy because so much feeds off the industry. So there has been a lot of interest. We've spoken about this at several events and we've several times had many people in the industry come up to us and say, can we help draft it? How can we collaborate? What can we do? And this week, I'm pleased to say we had a really great conversation with the Dubai Chamber of Commerce. They also have a construction forum. So we've agreed we're going to work together and try and explore ways that we can start engaging with the relevant authorities and explore trying to set up this guiding principal framework. You get a sense there of this being a really moving story of something that could, you know, we could potentially see change in the coming months, certainly within the next year, so to speak. Would this come before any changes to the law, the construction laws here in the UAE? Yes, and I think that's why we suggested the the playbook, because it would be more guidance and to try and create that behavioral change and that mindset change to really think of a capital project from a life cycle point of view, rather than from just procure your capital projects and what's your budget for building it. Think about the whole life cycle, what you're trying to achieve, embed your ESG principles, obviously your environmental impact, what are the social elements you want to achieve with the project. The guidelines give you the governance model then. And as the government changes legislation or improves legislation or introduces new legislation, it can hang under this framework then. We've discussed the uh, fast pace of technological advances on this podcast quite a few times. uh, And the topic of digital twins comes up a great deal. Would they be recommended in your new playbook, do you think? Absolutely. So system integration will definitely be at the heart of this. And I think certainly in terms of what Dubai Chamber are trying to achieve as well with the Dubai digital economy, there's a a real key opportunity to be one of the countries that could be a first mover in this area. So as you rightly say, we hear about digital twins all the time. Do we see many of them? Maybe, maybe not. We've heard about BIM modeling as well. So BIM modeling was introduced by Dubai Municipality a few years ago. But because of the significant changes that happen on a project site, for all the reasons we've just discussed, that BIM model is really hard to keep up to date. So at some point during the construction phase, unfortunately, it gets abandoned, which is a huge loss to the end users or to the owner because there's so much information gathered during a capital project. Systems integration, really having that BIM model functioning well, creating that digital twin means you can hand over the asset to the ultimate owner. And if you think of large scale capital projects, they have so much integrated in them. All your MEP equipment, all your warranties that you would want to track on every escalator, every lift. And you'd want all that information in a system where you're not spending double the amount of money because you can't find your warranty because it hasn't been tracked through the process. And that helps the footprint of that asset. And then on top of that, if you think about greenhouse gases, everybody talks about blockchain, how we're going to track the whole supply chain and quantify what that carbon footprint is, that needs to be embedded from the start of the construction project as well so that you can actually measure the carbon footprint of the project. So there's huge opportunity here for systems integration and really embracing the 
Dubai digital economy. We're going to be debating this at the uh, Big Five Global Leader Summit on the 5th of December. So I'm really looking forward to an engaging conversation then and more positive conversation around how we really make this reality. Cynthia Corby, an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Cynthia Corby there, audit and assurance partner at Deloitte's Dubai office and also a Middle East construction industry leader. So we're going to change tack slightly now for our second interview in this episode because ahead of the COP28 climate change talks, I've also been speaking about how the construction sector can reduce its carbon footprint. A little earlier, I was joined by Tushant Suri, who is head of sustainability at Ramble Middle East. Now, remember that the real estate industry contributes around 40% of the world's carbon emissions. A really massive number when you think about it. And I had a fascinating conversation over Zoom with Tashant. And I began by asking him what steps he thinks the sector needs to take in order to go green. The real estate sector, the industry, the built environment needs to go through its evolution. And I think it's more material to this part of the world where the sector employs almost 20% of the workforce. So it has a high ability to create that influence and impact. How do you do that? I think there needs to be a three-point centric approach. It needs to be data enabled. So it needs to be driven by database decisions, support of technology. The third is having a nature focus and also people-centric design, construction and operational approach. All of those sound like sort of key pillars. Can we get into the nitty gritty of those a little bit more? For example, do you think we need to see government regulations, even global government regulations, to force developers to follow certain rules when it comes to sustainability? The entire ESG climate transition space is an interesting one. I wouldn't really say regulation is required to enforce change. I think the change in the entire net zero journey across the globe is being driven by the flow of capital, where at COP26, almost two and a half years back, you had leading asset managers, insurers, financial institutes managing assets in excess of, I think, it's a bonanza number of 120 or 130 trillion dollars committing to net zero. So it's a flow of capital which will drive change. However, there is an urgent need of regulation that enables a transparent and assured reporting. So there's definitely a high degree of transparency and a data-enabled approach required through reports. And, and we've seen that effectively working in other geographies as well. It's interesting you say there it's about transparency, that there is a willingness in the industry to make this change on paper But are they actually doing it in practice? Because realistically, often making sustainable decisions ends up, in the short term at least, costing a bit more. Um, I've had a different experience. I think it just depends how we define costing. If you look at it from a cost of ownership, i.e. life cycle cost perspective, sustainability never comes at a cost. However, there might be an adverse impact from a short-term, i.e. CapEx point of view. However, as we've seen the global economy transitioning to net zero, when you look at cost of ownership or life cycle cost, it's not just a function of the investment. It's a function of your carbon credentials, which then impact your insurance premiums, asset valuation, how you attract anchor tenants, and fundamentally aligning with 
RIC's latest guidelines, which recommends on qualifying ESG performance for assets through its valuation. So from a long-term perspective, it really wouldn't come on a cost tag. However, from a CapEx perspective, at times that might be the case. But again, I think looking at the direction of travel for the region, it's everybody's moral responsibility to have a long-term vision and decision-making process rather than knee-jerk short-term decisions. You mentioned there COP26 and the progress that was made there. Let's look ahead to to COP28, only a week away as we record this Big Five Global podcast. What are your anticipated outcomes from that big climate change conference, which, of course, is taking place right here in Dubai at Expo City? Ah, it's interesting. I think uh, definitely this should be a big COP, especially around the global stock take, which is being discussed. And other financial mechanisms actually need to support the Paris Agreement. What I would expect out of or anticipate and wish out of COP28 for the region is definitely some sort of guidelines mandating transparent reporting on non-financial disclosures. That's one. The second is I would love to see some sort of a carbon price being introduced that enables organizations, cities, countries to actually support their net zero transition and and start looking beyond the financial short-term impact. And I I think carbon price is a very strong mechanism to support that transition, which means you might potentially penalize the ones who are creating high damage, but also on the flip side, rewarding those who are actually walking the talk. You sound reasonably upbeat about COP28 and and the possible emergence of rules and regulations. Am I right to read you that way? Indeed, because I think climate crises are real. The physical and transition risk associated with climate change has been magnified more than ever. In my personal capacity, I don't think it's an option. It's about you have to go on the journey. It's just now a function of time. And if it's a function of time, the sooner you do it, the better. Do you foresee any hurdles? I think from a regional perspective, I don't see a lot if I'm very transparent. But obviously, when you look at it from a COP28 and a global delegation perspective, then obviously the agreements, et cetera, that need to be aligned to. But from a regional perspective, I think if you look at the Middle Eastern countries' net zero vision, net zero targets are pretty robust. Targets need to be backed by real and tangible actions. And that's what's the theme for COP. It's called for action. So I'm pretty optimistic that it would be traveling only north from here. What's so interesting is that you mentioned there that the region is ready, and yet this region is currently going through exponential growth from a construction point of view. I mean, obviously, we're constantly seeing uh, buildings going up left, right and centre in the UAE, but now we've got Saudi Arabia entering the fray as well. Do you think these two pillars of exponential growth and a need to become more sustainable can move in parallel? I think so, because I think in terms of engineering capabilities, in terms of knowledge, in terms of maturity of the supply chain, um, the ambition and realistic products exist. I don't see a reason why sustainability and exponential growth cannot go hand in hand. In fact, in my opinion, whatever is being developed today, it's it's more important than ever that you future-proof the asset from a climate risk perspective, which means that the assets which are being designed and constructed today would definitely be around in 30 years when we need to be achieving and delivering our 
net zero ambition. So it's imperative for the designs and, and projects being constructed today to be net zero ready and aligned. That was the voice of Tushant Suri. He is head of sustainability at Rambol Middle East. And that brings us to a close of our sixth episode of this, the Big Five Global Podcast. Just two more to go as we build up to the Big Five Global event, which is, of course, taking place from the 4th until the 7th of December, right here in Dubai. Make sure you subscribe and download all our previous podcasts. And the next one comes out next Friday. To register for Big Five Global at the World Trade Center from the 4th to the 7th of December, head to big5global.com.